You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. This is the Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. You ever... uh... You ever play around with this is totally <laughs> prepared here. Do you ever play around with deodorant versus not wearing deodorant? All the time. I go back and forth constantly. Okay. So the only time I don't is when I forget or it's not convenient. Like I go to do a morning workout and I realize my deodorant's upstairs and I don't want to wake anyone up. And a lot of the time I realize I make it much longer in the day before I start to smell in my armpits. Uh-huh. Sometimes the deodorant smell itself gets twisted and it becomes its own ripe scent so today i was like you know what i'm gonna go no deodorant because yesterday my armpits didn't smell at all and i made it to like 9 30 and i noticed myself this morning yeah that's bad i made it three hours can be what's the ac set at in your house it was i was outside oh we, okay we are doing my dad's got this deck project that just finished up and then we poured concrete steps this uh, this weekend. And now we're finishing up this last little like part of the path leading up to it. But we had to make a, a run to good old Menards and pick up 12 bags of, of concrete and some plywood and, you know, <laughs> some of that stuff. And it rocked me. It did. Oh, so it was, okay. Why? I don't know. I, it was, it was almost like I had been on an airplane, you know, you get off an airplane and you're matted down in there and you have a weird smell. <laughs> yeah, I do. It was that I thought, wow, this is, this is traveling odor right here. You know, I um I don't like like scented deodorant or colognes. They kind of give me a headache, so I have to do I do like non scented. What do you use? Tom's of Maine. Oh, that one I don't like either. I don't even know what it is. It's this unscented. It's basically like a glue stick. It looks like and it feels like it too. Now I'm a scent person. I throw on deodorant with scent. Yeah. Although this man, this this was not planned, but in I was Old Spice from the first stick of deodorant I ever bought was Old Spice. It was like that cool blue or whatever. I I did not like white powder deodorant, you know that flaky stuff. I wanted the the clear gelatinous kind, and yeah. I wore it all through high school, all through college, and my third or fourth year of college, I put it on one day. Minutes later, my armpits just started burning. That's what happens when I use Tom's burning and burning to the point it was unbearable. And I just had to like get in the shower and rinse and rinse it off. And I lost an entire layer of skin. It was like I had poison ivy in my armpits. And so I had to get away from it. Like I, I had just my armpits peeled from it. I got like a chemical burn and I went away from it for a year or two. I tested it out again and the same thing happened. So I've, I've not used uh, old spice since, but no matter what I use, I use scented. Yeah. Cause Lisa is a very scent based person. When I, last time I was at your house, you had like air freshener plugins everywhere. Oh yeah. And it got you, didn't it? Yeah. I just stand out in your driveway. It was the night before that Chicago race actually. And I was like, Bracken, I'm going to go chill in your driveway because I don't want a headache. Yeah. And if you would have told me, I would have just popped those things out. What are the chances? You know, you know, I like just let my pheromones just breathe into the world and put that vibe out there, Bracken. I don't want to cover that up with Fiji or with cool water. You know, I don't feel like the world can handle my pheromones, Kirk. Oh, all right. I don't need to be mobbed everywhere I go. (laughs) 
<laughs> I wouldn't know anything about that. So no. um, let's just talk about one elephant in the room right now, Bracken, before we get into today's episode. And that is what the governor of West Virginia sort of announced um, this last this week. Well, last week now when you guys are listening to this. But the governor, I guess you didn't see this, did you, Bracken? No, I'm flying blind here. So the governor of West Virginia, because uh, the increase in COVID cases, announced that they are now canceling all outdoor festivals, concerts, anything large gatherings, sporting events. Uh, they had like a 250 person cap, I believe, on the gatherings. They're back to 25. All bars and restaurants are closed for indoor dining, only outdoor dining. And based on those criteria, I do not think it looks very good that West Virginia is happening. He just announced that two days ago. From We're recording this on Friday before our Tuesday episode. So uh, whew, I just don't I just don't see that going well, man. I just do not. I don't know how you feel. That was the exact announcement. Unless it gets retracted quick. You can't go back on that. I just don't think you can. I mean, unless they give it like a one month and then they go back. But yeah, it's looking like West Virginia will not happen now. I, how do you how do you as Spartan commit to going to a place, putting a venue together, all the employees, the intricacies of an event where they can't are not allowed of to do as of today? So what are the chances in six weeks that that is lifted? I just I don't well, know. That, that. That's the problem. It's a minimum two week process, minimum to set up the course. Yeah, to set up the entire venue to get the infrastructure in there. And so they would have to have actionable intel that told them this is going to happen two weeks out, which only gives them four weeks from today. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're dealing with, and we haven't talked about COVID a whole lot since our like way back, like training through the quarantine stuff, but you have so many states that are requiring mandatory quarantine if you leave or come back right now, especially the high impacted states like New York. You can't even have Ryan Atkins or Lindsey Webster come down from Canada to come race West Virginia. You have so many things going on that it just starts to feel not like it's tarnished because it's not tarnished. We all want to race, but like it's, I want it to be the same as it always is. And I just don't see it feeling or being what we want it to be. I just, you know, if it happens and we go race and we race our hearts out, I think everybody's going to feel great about it. But is it going to be a situation where we have to show up and wear masks at the venue like they're requiring still? Is it going to be temperature gun at the door and nobody's in the venue? Half the reason we go is to see our friends and have beer afterwards. Are we going to feel like we can't do that? It's just like are you starting to feel how real it it might be that the chances it's not happening or if it does, it might just not be the same. Yeah. And Utah has historically throughout this not been a front runner in being lax with their policy. Mm -hmm. So as of today, if I were a betting man, I would now say Utah and West Virginia will not happen. And Washington, Seattle's the next U.S. National Series race two There's weeks not later. A it's not that we want to be the bearers of possible bad news because nothing officially has been announced yet. But you got to look at the facts and you've got to look at what the trend is doing in the U.S. And you got to start just maybe just having like a, a safety net emotionally to fall back on if the mm -hmm. rug gets swept out underneath us. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. And regardless of whether we have the race or don't have the race, I've been getting messages from both sides. People like, hey, all my races are canceled and I don't have anything till 2021. And I just can't wait to get there in the best shape ever. I now have unimpeded training time where I don't have to do an abrupt cycle. I can just a lot of people said, I've, I'm going to do a periodized off-season build for the first time in my life. Mm -hmm. And then there's the people who are like, hey, I, I do have a race coming up um, and it's coming up soon and I haven't raced in so long. But the concern both sides have had is 
I'm just not ready to race right now. I have, it's been so long since I've made myself miserable that I can't even imagine how I'm going to react mentally out on course. And the other side is I'm not going to be on course for another six months or four months. I don't know how I'm going to even like going to hold my hand to the flame. You guys are talking with some people who are getting comfortable being uncomfortable. That's their big topic. I haven't been truly uncomfortable in so long. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that is, that's, that all ties into what we're talking about today, Mm -hmm. doesn't it? I, I think you're walking me into that one. And that is, we're talking about mental toughness today, doing gritty things, do things that scare you, do things that hurt. I think, you know, both of our last interviews have just been so beautiful to piggyback on both Cole DeRosa and then Casey McAllister. Cole uh, was a really good example of doing like difficult things on a regular basis. And then Casey, I can't, how can you even speak more highly of a guy who just tackles life head on with no legs and wants to look for the next hard thing to do that he knows is going to suck even more. It's uh, it's an endearing quality. And so we were talking about what we wanted to speak about today. And you just had a message about this from a couple athletes anyways, didn't you? Not feeling mentally race ready. Yeah. I even got an email this morning and this is what sealed it for me that this is what we should talk about is someone that said, Hey, I'm not racing till next year. I can't wait to get better. But if I had to race right now, I have lost over quarantine. I have lost all my confidence as a racer. Even if her fitness had improved, she lost her confidence as a racer, which is everything. My dad and I were talking in the truck today because my sister's a basketball player and I'm a runner. And we were talking about how those are the exact opposite ends of the spectrum where endurance sports are only controlled by two things, your mind game and your genetics. That's it. If your genetics are superior and your mind game is up to the task, you just do not lose to people who are genetically inferior to you unless their mind game is way ahead. Where basketball, there are people at the professional level who are actually just not good athletes. They're few and far between, but there's a whole spectrum of athletic abilities in professional basketball because you can have so many moves or tricks, uh, being able to position your body, being able to read an offense or defense and always be in the right spot negates other people's athleticism. There's not a version of that in running. You can't like mm-hmm. be this crafty KG athlete who's mm-hmm. not fast and has a low aerobic capacity and just be super tough. That'll get you pretty far, but you just can't break into the top end. You have to be genetically talented as well. And that's not true in a skill-based sport all the time. So mm-hmm. with ours, You have to be genetically on, but you also have to be mentally dialed in. And that's what a lot of people have lost. You can't change your genetics. Mm -hmm. You can make your fitness go up and down. But if your mind game is lost, that's the only way you lose to someone who's inferior to you talent-wise. Yeah. And we've talked about this throughout the past months is, you know, Bracken, you went out for two 100-mile bike ride efforts just to do something that sucked and that was hard and that forced you to get mentally gritty. Um, my, myself right now, I did a 45 minute tempo ride on the assault bike on Tuesday morning back. And you know what that feels like? I've never tempoed on an assault bike. I tempoed at 45 minutes and it actually got me concerned. And it's part of the reason I wanted to have this conversation today too, is I know if I would go out in tempo where my heart rate would be at, if I went for a 45 minute tempo run running. Do you know how hard it was mentally to stay engaged, Bracken, to get my heart rate where I needed it to be on that assault bike for 45 minutes? 
I would have rather peeled off my toenails one by one, Bracken, to, than the mental capacity it took for me to get my heart rate where I needed to keep it for 45 minutes. And I was like, God, I kept watching it dip and losing my laps and concentration and going, shit, like if this was a race, like I certainly am not ready for that burn because this assault bike, and they're very different. You know how hard it is on mm -hmm. like an assault bike to do that. But I did it because I knew I needed a mental suck. I needed a mental grind. And I would like to say that for the last 10 minutes, I kept my heart rate over 170 on that 45 minute, that tempo work. And I felt good about it. That's awesome. We need more of those days in our lives, don't we? Because toughness and grit and race readiness is a perishable skill. Yes. And it is not necessarily tied into your training volume. It is tied into your training intensity. 100%. 100%. Not has nothing to do with volume. Zero. It is the single biggest drawback to being a high volume athlete. The single biggest hole that I can shoot in that argument is that sometimes that happens at the expense of intensity. And while I am a believer in volume, I am an uber believer in intensity. And if we avoid intensity, especially nasty, make yourself question your existence efforts, you erode your ability to do those. And like anything else in life, Every time you back off or turn away or choose not to, that becomes an easier decision each time. We talk about greasing the groove. That also works in the negative. You can condition yourself. You can have that groove greased to back away from intensity, to back away from bearing down when things are uncomfortable. And that is something I found myself doing. I am hypercritical of myself. And the thing I am most critical of myself is that I got mentally weak at being mentally tough over the last few years. And that's why those 100 mile rides started to happen. I told you, I need to go out and do things that are more uncomfortable, that set me up to have to make the choice to quit, to maintain, or to bear down. Because as an athlete, you are either improving or you're getting worse. There's no such thing as staying the same because staying the same is getting worse. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And if you are staying the same, it's a, for a very short amount of time, I feel like, before you're either gonna head one direction or another. And even if you don't, the people around you will get better. And yeah. in essence, you have decreased. This conversation makes me think back about college, uh, college track running, okay? I was a miler, an All-American in the 1500. That was my supposed specialty, right? Yet every single year when we had our first indoor mile or 1500 meters, we were training hard. I was doing intense interval work. We were prepping that 1500 or mile hit me like a freight train every time. And I said, Jesus, fuck it, like hurt way more than I anticipated. And I wasn't, I mean, I had a decent race, but I didn't even access part of my potential because I wasn't even accustomed to that amount of intense pain for that long. And so it just prevented my ceiling from going where I knew it could. And then we get to our second and third 1500 of the season and suddenly it would pop. I would run faster. It would actually hurt less perceived exertion wise. And I would come around. And even when I was training at that intense, intense level, it still took a race for mm -hmm. me to get it out of the way. And so when you say we don't have races to run, okay, shit. Well, how do we do that? Well, we can't have a race, but we can do our best to get ready for that feeling that we can. And so I don't know, but did you have that experience in college when you were like running 800 meters and that first one just was like misery? No, actually, because really? our joke was that race day was the third hardest day of our week. Um, mm. I was always overtrained in college because we did so much intensity. We did so many interval workouts per week. 
and I was never the best on our team and we had a race mindset at practice. And so I was always working at a harder pace to hit a time than I should have been. I should have been hitting efforts. Instead, I was hitting, trying to do what the guy to my left was doing. We would line up for every interval. This this is like subconsciously, no one ever directed us to do this. We'd line up at the start line for everyone. You'd finish a workout or you'd finish the jog recovery. You'd come up to the line and the coach would say, three, two, one. And as we came up to the line, we ordered ourselves from fastest to slowest. Mm-hmm. It just like, it, it was this unconscious pecking order that happened without words. And so you'd start and like, oh, any waterfall start, you fall in behind the people who are faster than you. So everyone's chasing the person just faster, which is in theory, a cool thing. But then you come around the final bend and you accelerate to get up next to the person. And so I end up running the same time as the guy to my left and his left, but it's taken me 10% more effort. And so I was always overcooked, but as a result, I'd get to race day and I was used to overcooking and it felt normal. Mm. So we had opposite sides of the coin that demonstrated the same exact thing, which is that you have to be used to that pain. Yeah. Every time I mile time trial, it's like, even now, fast forward to today, it's the same feeling. Sometimes the 5k we can go all right. But point being is we got to talk about how we're going to get gritty, how we're going to keep our foot to the flame and how you're going to prepare yourself to like actually suffer and push through it, make the choice to sit in it versus let it win. Right? Absolutely. hundred percent. And there is really only one way to do that. And that is to choose workouts or time trials or competitions that address the things that you are not good at. Yeah. The other way is to simply do the things you're good at at maximum effort. And I think it's probably good to have 50-50 of that. Do your time trials, do your simulations, but at least half of what you're doing on the days you're supposed to be hurting should be things that you're not excited for. Because if you can get through that, you can get up for race day. The pain of race day should not shock you. But just like giving birth, the, the women's minds trick them after a while. They get done with it and they always say, that was awful. I'm never doing that again. And then after like six months or nine months or a year, they're like, you know what? I could have another baby. It wasn't that bad. And it's like, it's this self-preservation mechanism that we have that keeps us reproducing. If everyone remembered that pain their entire life, we'd have no population on this earth. But <laughs> yeah. that's, that's the way we're hardwired for everything. We forget how bad it was so we can do it again. And that's how racing is. You remember the glory, the glamorous parts of it, of making the surge or crossing the line and chatting about it for months after with your friends. You forget how you almost quit during the middle. And that's the danger of going too far in between races. So you have to have real mental races in between races. And the other thing that we just need to address is something you mentioned earlier, that volume does not prepare you for intensity. And a lot of people are falling into that trap. Like they're doing great. They're out putting miles in. They're spending these awesome mountain days. They're, they're built up a lot of longer, not slow, maybe slow stuff, whatever it is. You've seen a lot of that, like that non-purposeful running or training. Mm-hmm. Um, and as much of a base as that's going to create for you, and it will pay off, like that is work and money in the bank that you can you know, take out later. You would still, if that's what you were doing, and then you showed up to the first race of the season, you would get smashed. You would absolutely get smashed. You would be two miles in at an effort and a heart rate and a exertion that you haven't felt in months. And you would get spit out the back and feel like shit and wonder what went wrong. And so I think it's so important to just dial in now that we're 
fingers crossed, maybe out from some races six weeks. Like if you're going to get tuned up, it's now like we got to get tuned up. And you know what, guys, there's no harm in getting tuned up right now anyways, because what are we going to do? Sit in base phase for the next year? Like, no, you're going to see peaks and valleys of your fitness. You still want to train those things. And I would say all green lights right now at this point into doing some hard, miserable, purposeful work, whether we race or not, because you do not want to let it slip too far away from Mm -hmm. you. So that's where I'm at with that. Exactly. Long, big volume efforts does build grit and toughness, but it's a different version. No matter how fatigued you are, it doesn't hurt the same way as oxygen debt, as lactate overload. It's just a different burn. And it's not that one's better than the other, but races generally bring out oxygen debt where big, long, multi-hour efforts bring on massive fatigue. And so training one is fine, but it doesn't prepare you for the other as well. So I think we should talk about some of our favorite grit-inducing workouts, getting comfortable, being uncomfortable, and then also talk about how someone could design their own. Yeah, I like that. Let's dive into it. You want to start with one of yours or should I start with one of mine? Um, I can start with I can start with one or two. Um, I'm going to start with some short, spicy stuff that yeah. I think... Uh, one of my absolute favorite workouts. In fact, I dread about three workouts in my repertoire. I dread them. Tell me all three. Okay, I will. And it's because I know the pain that they induce. Okay. I know how bad they hurt. I know that I cannot show up 1% off my gain, my game, or it's going to go poorly. The first of those is a workout uh, that you initially coined. Um, it's a simple concept, but it's called shoots and ladders. And for me, shoots and ladders is a day when I know I need to go feel like what it's going to be like in a race. I go do a workout called shoots and ladders. Shoots and ladders is very simple. You remember the game shoots and ladders? I assume that's where you got the name from, correct? Yep. Can you explain it since it was your brainchild? Well, shoots and ladders is the game where you just, you roll your die, you move forward however many places your die says. And if you hit a ladder, you get to climb up it. And if you land on a a slide, a shoot, you have to zoom all the way back to the bottom and start over. And that's just what the workout is. You're always going up right after coming down or going down right after coming up. And it works on getting to the top with your lungs burning and your legs really, really blasted and having to turn around and be a good, fast, relaxed descender at race effort while you're overly blown up. So you get to the top more blown up than you would be in a race. And then you get down, you try to be more relaxed than you would be in a race while still going fast. And it just teaches tired, efficient descending and then also climbing when you're already fatigued. So my favorite version of that workout is you want to find a hill that takes you, I'm going to say, give or take 90 seconds to run up. I like the 90 second ish range. Um, Very, you want something steep and miserable, not a gradual grade. You want something like 20 plus percent grade and you want to hammer that harder than race effort up. And I like to go up, down, and back up at race effort, and then use the descent as my recovery, that that second descent. So what that does is is it's so hard to run fast uphill when you've done hard descending. Like after you do a hard descent and then have to climb again, that's a recipe for just blowing your legs up if you don't do it very often. So for me, that climb sucks. I, I make that first climb like that's the only thing I'm doing. Then I hang on to intensity on the descent. And then I suffer that second climb so bad. It is the most miserable inside out. I hate my life. What am I doing? Effort. And then I get to the top with the highest I'll see my heart rate probably in any training session. And I just basically almost walk down the hill to the start and then hit it again. 
And so many of our races are up and down and so many require multiple ascents and descents. And every time I do that workout bracken, I know a race can't possibly hurt more than that workout. Mm -hmm. And so that is one of the first ones I go to is your original shoots and ladders with an extra ascent at the end, because that's what I found I needed to work on in a race. Yeah. Um, so that's number one. I don't know what you think about that, but that one will do the trick. You know what? That workout was one of the first workouts I started doing out in Colorado when I had access to real hills and longer hills. And I actually did the opposite of that one. I did a gradual, I, I mean, I had two, I had two hills. So I started at this reservoir, Gold Camp Reservoir in Colorado Springs. And I would run this 1.15 mile switchback graduate, not real switchback, but windy switchback trail up to the top. And it was like a six to 10% incline. Hmm. And right before the top, there was like a 200 meter section that was probably 20 to 30%. That does the trick. And so I'd run just above threshold the entire first mile. And then the last 0.15, I'd hammer up that steep part, get to the top gasping and have to turn around and go down. Mm -hmm. And then there was also a technical steep way up and I do route up and down A and then route up and down B as I got closer to race day. But in off season, I just do A, the gradual one the whole time. And it was the same thing it turned me inside out. Mm. I like I like to keep them shorter. Like I think my reps will hover in the four minute range because it just requires a certain more intensity that's faster than race pace. Yeah. If it's if it's shorter. So for me, that that kind of pain is what I need to just get more comfortable with. I think everybody should get more comfortable with it. Yeah. But I'll have you to thank for that one. And that's when I throw in. All right. Well, one more difference though, is that you are a better grinder than I am. Yeah, I probably I can't argue with that. I can nail intervals that I cannot reproduce in longer distances. So my weakness mentally and physically was grinding. And so I was at altitude running 11 minute intervals. Yeah. Well. And so that was, that was more miserable for me physically and mentally because I had to sustain, I had to get blown out and then hold on for five more minutes. Yeah. But yeah, I don't think there's a right or a wrong. I think it's again, matching the one that's more miserable for you or matching the skill that you need more work on. Yeah. And you can do anything hard or easy, right? Like it's all yeah. about effort level, but that we're not talking about easy today, guys. We're talking about hard. Like this is, you're only going to get out of this, what you put into it. And so it is over committing to your first hill rep, in my opinion, hanging on for a descent and then just suffering through that second climb. Even if that second climb is notably slower than your first one, that's kind of the, I don't want to say it's the point, but it's kind of the point. It is. You know where I got the basis for this workout it was back in my college days. In the small town of Whitewater, we'd have this, one of our, we had names for every run we did, but one of them that we ran was Industrial Extended. And on Industrial Extended, about a mile and a half into the run, we'd leave from the university field house, run out, a mile and a half in, there was what we called Scholarship Hill. No one knows when it started, but on easy days, anytime we did Industrial Extended, the top of Scholarship Hill was basically uh, king of the mountain. Uh -huh. Each time people would be looking around like, all right, who's going after it today? And suddenly someone maybe a quarter mile out, sometimes a half mile. If someone really wanted it, they might start a mile out. Someone would take off running. I like that. It was for nothing other than you got to the top and you got to announce you accepted a scholarship to any school in the nation. So you get to the top <laughs> and someone would be like, I have ta I'm taking my talents to like Concordia University or something <laughs> like, I'm going to Duke. I'm a blue devil. Or someone would choose some obscure like Wabash State or something. It was like this team joke, but people went after it as if there were a real scholarship on the line. Uh, it was like one of these corny things that sounds weird to talk about, but people went after it. 
And there was no worse feeling throughout the entire year to me than when you'd start making an extended push. And usually the person that went first didn't win because someone, it's like the Tour de France, the, the Peloton would reel them in and it would always come down to this 150, 250 meter sprint up the hill. And so it was kind of like a VO2 max test where the pace got ramped up as the incline ramped up and you get to the top. And the rule was, if you made it to the top, it only counted if you finished the rest of the run without resting. Uh, so you totally blow it out, sprint all the way to the top, and then you'd have to run down the other side and finish with the group, at least in contact with the group for your run. And so you're basically, it was like compromised running. You were in debt the whole rest of the run. And it was so awful. And that's where I realized, like, getting to the top, overcooked intentionally, and now you got to hold on. That's a real nasty skill to work on. Well, and it is. And it's also, you know, if, if, if it's one of those races with one big climb in it, it really is a race to the top. It really is a race to the top. So it's training that it's training that too. And if you're a poor descender and you need to work on your descending, you could do it the opposite. You could descend hard first, climb hard, and then descend hard finally. And then maybe power hike easy up the hill to start your next rep. You could do it the opposite. Um, four workouts come to mind now that I'm thinking about it. Do you want right. to share Do you want to share your next or should I go into one? Yeah. And it's not groundbreaking. We've talked about it a lot, but the workout I dread more than any other workout I ever do is the treadmill challenge. That's okay. Wait, you took one of my four. Okay. 15% incline on the treadmill for 15 minutes. And you just go from max distance. And that one hurts me as bad or worse than a 5k race does. It's like you make it five or six minutes in and it's like, oh, this is real. And by minutes eight through 12, I want to quit every step of the way. This is the workout that I don't even attempt anymore without someone else in the room with me because I yeah. need an accountability partner. I say, all right, Lisa, I'm treadmill challenge. Can you come out and watch me? Because that's it. It's so nasty. I want to quit. And it it it's a great test for your anaerobic capacity. And it's a great test for uphill running, but it's a the best test in my mind for being mentally tough. Couldn't agree more. I was gonna bring that one up myself because you get about seven, eight minutes into that. Uh granted, you don't go too conservative, which it's almost hard to do in that workout. Um, and it's, it's seven to seven to nine minutes of just pure mental grit. If you're going to accomplish something there and that's how, you know, when your mental game is strong, when you hang on there, that's yeah. a, that's a surefire way. Sorry to interrupt, but I have two no, points. On that one. When I'm on, on my game, there are two decision points in that race. The first, that race, that workout first is at seven to eight minutes. If I back off there, I'm not so right there. But if I dig in and keep my miles per hour steady, I'm good. And then the last minute to two, if I am broken mentally, I'm doing my best to stay on the treadmill and I'm just content to ride it out. Mm -hmm. And if I am locked in, I am cranking it up and cranking it up and trying to eke every second out of that test and finishing with as close to a sprint as I can will my legs to do. And those are great points to look at the eight minute mark and then the 12, 13 minute mark in that test. If you're attacking versus conceding, you know where you're at mentally. Yeah. Yeah. I would say I was thinking about this as we've just been talking and so far the best, you know, my breakout season was in 2018, which, um, I ended up taking fourth place in Seattle in the U S national series, went to big bear and took sixth place, which I had no business taking sixth place in big bear at elevation living here in Minnesota. Then I went and took fifth place in Chicago next in the U I ran in front of Cody Moat for seven of eight miles of that race, which is unfathomable to me. And then I got to thinking, Bracken, do you, the whole buildup, I was dealing with plantar fasciitis that winter and I wasn't able to run a ton. 
And I don't know if you recall this. Oh, yeah. I was coming up with these stupid ass challenges that were miserable just because I couldn't get all the running in on my feet. So I would create a workout that took me one to two hours, but I may only be running a portion of that. And one of those workouts, I don't know if you recall, was the burpee run ladder. Mm -hmm. It was 100 burpees, one mile run, 90 burpees, 0.9 mile run, 80 burpees, 0.8 mile run, 70.7 comes out to like 550 burpees or more than that. I don't remember. And five and a half miles of running. And it was for time. I was doing something like that every weekend, Bracken. I picked out something like that. A squat, 20 reps on the back squat and deadlifts and pull-ups into half mile hard into 15 reps of both, all for time. And then when I got to the season, Bracken, I don't know what physiological benefits came from those things. I can't even speak to what zones I was working in. But all I knew is that racing didn't feel any different than the shit I was doing on my own. Mm -hmm. And I came in and you know how mentally sharp I was. We did workouts at that time together at some points. And like, I was, there was no option. There was no, I was a hundred percent into every single race and not to make this about myself. But the point of that is, is that I was doing hard things on a regular basis outside of my normal comfort zone based on an injury. And now I realize what I was onto and my mental game was stronger than it has ever been. So I just, I just wanted to outline that building because on paper, I was running less than I would near, not even half of what I wanted to because I was working through plantar fasciitis, but I was doing those suck fests mm-hmm. and look where it got me. Yeah. yeah. This is an example of, okay, so I, I listened to Ian Hosick on uh, Obstacle Dominator this week because mm-hmm. I got some messages saying, hey, they talked about you a lot. So I went and listened to it and he is not, did you listen to it? Yeah, I listened to it. Yeah. So he doesn't believe in compromised run workouts most of the time. He knows there's a place for it, but he doesn't think you need that to build the correct fitness because he'd rather work on two different things in a vacuum and get the max benefits. And I messaged him afterwards like, hey, uh, I fully respect everything you said. No hard feelings because, you know, you're a great mind and you have rationale and science behind everything you say. There's no reason not to respect that. Also, We'd love to have you on and we can talk about all this stuff on there. And he said, absolutely. I love what you guys are doing too. Let's get on there and chat. Um, but this is this would be one of my arguments to that, that even if we can't identify the science behind, is this working in the right zone? Is this actually improving our fitness? This is a mental callus that we're building up. Yeah. And you can have, and one of the reasons I love compromised running is because you can have a higher level of pure fitness without it potentially but the sting of a race is overwhelming for some people. Yep. There are some people who can get in there and do it based off a huge aerobic and anaerobic capacity and great functional foundation of strength. Other people cannot accept that system overload if they haven't felt it. And I'm one of those people. I have to have this in my life so that my mental game is sharp. And you nailed it. And I remember that offseason. You did a lot of those with Fergie. You would message me these workouts and I looked at them and thought, that is stupid. I, I will not do that. And yeah. that is why you had a good season. And I didn't because you were seeking out that, that place. And I, I thought, Mm-mm, that's not for me. And yet race day that held true. You could seek it out and it wasn't for me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually implementing that right now that I'm not running. I had yeah. put at least one workout a week. Friday's my day. Today was my day where it's a row compromised suck fest or an assault bite to the point where like it simulates those exact same feelings because I'm, I'm afraid if I don't keep those in there and I just go out on the bike and hit the road every day that I, you will lose that tenacity. And the same thing to, uh, goes to say with just running steady. So yeah. um, do we want to outline a few more workouts and then just jack people up about why they need to be mentally yeah. tough? 
Yeah, okay. I think so. I think these are the ones we need to get out there. You know, you're going to maybe we're going to sound a little bit like a like a broken record with some of these things, but I think they're important to reiterate because these are the staples that when I build a training plan and I have a race coming up, these are the ones I'm putting in there to make sure that I I know race pain and I'm mentally sharp. So that's why you hear us maybe talking about a few of these multiple times on many episodes. But um, so for me, it's 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 always been and always will be two weeks out from a race a version of my OCR mile repeats, um, not working in any zone, working and get to the finish line as fast as I can in a consistent manner. And OCR mile repeats will get me to the place I need to be. Always, Mm -hmm. always, always, always. So I throw that workout in, especially four weeks out from a a race, I am doing OCR mile repeats. Uh, We've talked about it a number of times, but OCR repeats are very simple. It's a strength move, quarter mile, strength move, quarter mile, strength move, quarter mile, strength move, quarter mile, adds up to a total of mile. I do four quarter mile intervals, all preceded with strength movements, burpees, jump squats, I have thrusters, jump lunges, pushups. And um, you do it hard as shit. You do it at race effort or even like faster, as hard as sprint race effort. And then maybe take a three minute jog recovery and repeat. And that one always turns me inside out. For me with mine, I know if I can run seven minutes or under for a repeat, that I don't, I, my work is done. And that's run plus work. Time doesn't stop. Correct. That's like running 530 pace or under for the run section, getting right in and out of all those strength movements um, with purpose, mm-hmm. practicing my transitions. And there's no way you don't make that that workout hurt. Um, I would say the last half mile of every rep sucks. And like to be sucking for a half mile of a rep is a long time when you're hurting that bad. So mm-hmm. OCR mile repeats without question. If you're feeling a little soft mentally, it's time to get to work there. So I would say that one, but you already said it. And so I'm going to give a way that people can build their own. I have found that if I run a stadium race a week or two before a super or a beast or a sprint, I come in thinking there is nothing you can do to me today (laughs) that will hurt as bad as that. Because a stadium race is a stupid amount of intensity paired with a stupid amount of work because you're doing stairs and then you just get a little bit of flat running. And so you have to hit the run hard and then you get to a rep-based obstacle. But because every second matters and it's a time trial race, you can get beat by people in the wave behind you. You have to attack each section and it just turns into everyone's trying to rep match the person next to them. And because we have such a different array of athletes, you have Isaiah next to Killian, next to Kent, next to me, next to Ryan Kempson, Matt Kempson, like all these different styles of athlete are trying to rep match each other. So someone's always over revving so they don't lose a few seconds and then they get to their section and now they've got to take advantage so that they don't lose something on the next section. And Mm -hmm. so it's impossible not to be overcooked halfway through. And you just exist in this world of you're too burnt out you have oxygen debt, but you're doing high intensity reps on things. And that is very similar to the OCR 400s or the OCR miles in that you do rep-based explosive work when you're at a deficit and now the running is just really hard. And again, it's hard to identify physiologically what that's doing, but it's making you so tough mentally and it makes other things not as miserable. So since you already chose that, and I can't say go get a stadium race in before every big race, I'm going to go a little bit out in left field and say the most similar to that that I've ever done are CrossFit wads. That pain, kind of like you talked about with your your pain cave workouts you were doing when you were cross training. When I was at my mentally toughest living out in Colorado, 
uh, one of my roommates was KK Paul and her boyfriend, Christian, those two loved doing CrossFit. And I would pop in anytime they had a contest wad going on. I remember there was one, it started out with a thousand meter row, a hundred double unders with a jump rope, and then a one mile run. And that was it. And I turned myself inside out trying to post the fastest time against all the CrossFitters. Mm -hmm. I was at the time, I was 164 pounds. It was the lightest I've been as a post-collegiate athlete, but I was fit and I was nasty mentally. And I just went in every couple of weeks and tried to just trash these CrossFitters. But that kind of workout was so destructive to my body, but I could handle it mentally and I was tougher for it. So finding a CrossFit endurance wad, I think that's my two weeks out workout. The stuff I was doing before TMX and before High Rocks, really purposeful work followed by runs at max effort. It may not translate one-to-one or even like one-to-two fitness-wise for OCR, but bang for its buck, I don't think that there's a more miserable style of working out on this earth than doing compromised back and forth work for time. You know, it's funny about that. I agree with you a hundred percent. And I'm not a CrossFit proponent for the most part. I think they have good pieces to what they do, but I am by no means drinking the Kool-Aid. But if you want to turn yourself inside out, they know how to do it. Uh, a client of mine that I work with personally in the gym. Yeah, that's where I spend most of my time is personal training with clients in the gym. He goes to CrossFit two days a week outside of our sessions together. And so in these last four weeks, every Wednesday on there is their like Metcon cardio anaerobic quality wad. They're not touching much for weights. They're getting on the assault bike or rower or skier anyways. So I say, all right, tell me what it is. Tell me what the high score is that's posted. And so I've been sneaking them in on my own. And so last week was 15 calories on the assault bike, 15 burpees, four minutes, uh, four, three rounds. That simple with three minutes rest in between. And I knew what the high scores were. It's reps. How many calories plus burpees total? You get the high score. I high scored it by like 23 reps. Uh, the, the, what, the leader was like 196 and I did like 219 or something like that. Um, I hadn't seen my heart rate hit one. It hit 191 on the end on the assault. Yeah. No fucking way am I getting there any other way. And I'm going to keep doing that. Yeah. And I know like that, I know I can go for a run right now and hit intervals and no way the intensity is going to match that. So point being, those are things you need to be doing, I think, from time to time, especially if you're a little reticent to get it in on the running. Um, it works. And that piggybacks our that piggybacks our, our conversation last week where we talked about doubling up and hitting some Metcon strength workouts like, hey, you need to work on your mental game. Well, here's your chance. Let's pick something sucky and hit it for 20 to 30 minutes at it. That that burpee assault bike workout, Bracken, was 12 minutes of work. Yeah. Three minutes rest in between. I took me 25 minutes and it set me up for the rest of the day. And that's exactly it. That is not a physiologically proven carryover. I can't say that helps your 5K pace, your 10K pace, your lactic threshold um, tolerance, but I cannot hit 191 running. I physically can't unless I'm racing. I think I've hit it one or two times in a workout and it was in a max heart rate workout test. <laughs> Maybe in races, I've hit it two or three times in my life, like getting in the 190s. It just, it's really hard to do. You can't do that running alone, but adding in another modality allows you to just peg it. And that's why it's important. Yeah. Um, I think run wise, I've seen 193 or 194 in the shoots and ladders. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. At the top of like that second hill rep, I think uh, that's all the high. I almost got to that level 
in this assault bike workout. And something you were just talking about before that I want to touch on, uh, you talked about doing a stadium race before a super, for example. Um, I think going out and time trialing or doing a race effort that is significantly shorter than the race you're about to tackle is very good at helping you run faster than race pace and feel that sting that's going to be a little sharper than the sting of the race you have coming up. So for example, a lot of times in track and field, a, five, a 5K runner who's looking to go run their PR is going to run a hard mile the week before at a, at a, a race. Even though the 5Ks are event, they're going to go over speed train and then go run that 5K the next week. And suddenly, prospectively, that pace seems a little more comfortable and they're allowed to just sit in it better. So if you have a super or a beast coming up, it may be the time to go out and hit like a 30, 45 minute trail time trial or a hard, maybe beyond threshold run, something that just, you know, it's going to be faster and more intense than what the race is coming up is going to demand because the race coming up is longer. And I find that that short stuff before a longer effort um, really translates well. We would race an 800 in college and sometimes 400s before a 1500 that mattered to us. Yeah. Um, and I bet you did the same. Absolutely. Always. We'd race a hard 400 if we had a 800 meter that mattered coming up. Yep. The best 800s I ever ran one season was after I messed around the 400 hurdles for a couple of weeks because the 400 hurdles hurt so badly and it was over quick that an 800 was almost like a respite. That seems like a miserable race, the 400 hurdles. So oh, miserable. It was bad. What does that last 100 feel like in a 400 hurdles? You can't even feel your legs, I feel like. It feels like OCR. Oh. When you're really trashed, but you're, tr but like, it's, tr it's like sprinting at the end of an OCR race where you know you need to be moving faster, but you're so fully depleted that you just can't be your normal self. Mm, sounds terrible. Yeah, it's bad. All right. Here is the, probably the last one that I feel is really important to hear about. And this kind of leads into how to plan your own. Yeah. And I just have one more too, and then we'll move on from that. Yeah. Okay. So I used to do this workout again. I've spent so much time looking back on when I was at my best, what, I, what was I doing versus what am I doing now? And this is one I keep coming, coming through or coming across. When I was teaching at Bigfoot High School at the beginning of my OCR days, I started doing this where I needed to get better at obstacles and I needed to practice things that I wasn't practicing because I didn't like it or I was bad at it. So I would set up this workout where I would have 1,000 meter runs and I'd have 500 meter runs. And it'd just be 1,000, 500, 1,000, 500, 1,000, 500. And I would make it last either 5K, 8K, or 10K total, depending on what I was prepping for. Usually, it, I did, I'd do it for 10K, so for 6.2 miles. So 1,000, 500, 1,000, 500, adding up to 10,000 total meters. And yep. in, it was four time, no rest between. There was an obstacle station in between everything. And so I would write down what are my 10 most or my five most miserable obstacles that I am the worst at. And so for me, it was, and I'd either do that obstacle or I'd have a simulation of it. So uphill climbing was always bad. So I would have 50 to hundred meters of lunges, depending on race distance was one station. And then another one was barbed wire crawl. So I'd have to do 50 to hundred yards on the football field, alternating between fast, fast bear crawl and rolling on the grass to get used to being dizzy and getting good at it. I'd have a sandbag and a bucket carry. I would have several different things like this. And then I'd write them all down on a piece of paper and I'd put them in a bucket and I'd shake the bucket up and then I'd set up every obstacle, set it all up in one central location. And I'd, I'd press start, I'd run my thousand meter loop, come back in 
and I would have to run as fast as I could up to the bucket, break down at the last second, pick it up, and I'd have two seconds from when I hit the bucket to when I had to put it back down. And so I'd pick up a piece of paper and it would say 100 meter lunges. And I'd be like, oh, and I'd have to hit it. And then I'd finish, run back to my start and do my 500, come in and pick the next thing up. And this was my mental toughness day because I was anticipating all the nasty things that I'd have to do and everything was nasty, but I had no idea when I was going to hit it. And I didn't want to hit like a, um, ble- I'd do my sandbag carry up and down the bleachers. I didn't want to get that one in the next round, pick up hundred meter lunge walk because it was too similar, but sometimes you'd hit that or you get through something good that you were a little bit better at and you'd be like, oh, I have nothing but bad stuff left. Or you get through a bad thing and be like, hey, I have a 50% chance that now barbed wire crawl doesn't sound so bad after a hundred meter lunge walk. So it was a perspective day, but it was working on the things I was bad at and having some like race brain involved. I had to be able to read. <laughs> I had to be able to think accurately. I had to be able to take the best route to get to the next obstacle. And that one, I would do once every four to six weeks and it got me ready to go hurt in a race. I really like that. That's actually a lot of fun. Reminds me of an interval session we'd do back in college. You'd be like, okay, you're in high school. You'd have to accumulate 5,000 meters of work and you'd have a set of dice and you'd roll it. And if it was a four and a two, that's six, that's 600 meter rep, go. Everything at a minute rest, didn't matter. Roll the hmm. dice until it adds up to 5K. I like that. Um, but that's great. I think the key to hone in on what you just said is uh, your weaknesses. You were pick, identifying weaknesses and then implementing them into broken running. And and I think that's the key. So. I like your creative way of doing it. That's awesome. I approve. And it made races more fun because I had all the worst parts in the race. I mean, in the practice, I get to race and be like, oh, over, under, through? That is a rest. I'm not lunge walking. This is fantastic. Yeah. Or I yeah. get to a hill and I'd be like, I get to run this hill instead of simulating it with a hundred meter lunge walk. So it really made things more tolerable. And I got much better at barbed wire crawls as a result. And I got better at burpees because... I'd sprinkle. Oh, and the other thing is if I had seven, I was going to do, I'd put 10 in there and Uh, I'd have like three extra 30 burpee cards in there. And so like you might get all three or you might get none. And so it kind of kept you guessing the whole time, but I got better at burpees because of it and other things like that. You love burpees. (laughs) (laughs) I would eradicate them from the face of the earth if I could. Uh, I, uh, the last one that I just want to add is very simple. It deals with heart rate. Uh, a lot of the pain and suffering from races comes from just that elevated heart rate over an extended period of time. Eventually you can't filter through the lactate enough and, and it builds up and it's that really uncomfortable feeling that we get where our bodies just want to scream and we need to slow down. Um, so I would pick a heart rate. I would pick a heart rate and say, I am going to keep my heart rate. I'm going to get it there first and keep it above X for let's say 30 minutes. You could be on trails, you could be on and you keep you just keep it on the heart rate setting on your watch. You don't look at pace and you just keep checking. Am I above what I want to be at? Um, depending on your heart rate zones, for me, I know like I can go sit at 170 beats a minute for 30 minutes, for example. Uh, yeah, is that is that beyond threshold work or what I'm uh, maybe necessarily recommended to do for that? Yeah, probably. But it also is training me to keep my you know my foot to the fire, as they say. So. Um, If you know your zones or you know where you sit and you know what work feels like, I really like the simplicity of not even worrying about the, you know, if you have a hilly race coming up, great, go to the hills, go to the undulating terrain. For me, I would say I'm going to go, okay, you got to, you got to hit 168 or above for a half an hour. You got to get to that by the first mile. So I'm up there and I'm sitting in it. Uh, And then if it starts to drift, then you got to lay the hammer down a little bit and get it back there. And 
for me, that's just a lot of people struggle to keep it high and keep it there. And I think keeping that in check might, I don't know, people's heart rates can drop without them even being conscious of it. And then in a race, when it comes to staying on that intensity, you can let it drift as well. And you just don't want to get accustomed to that. So uh, I like the simplicity of that style as well. It's a little subjective with the heart rates you could pick, but um, it works. I like it. And and you can set heart rate zones on your watch to beep. It's what yeah. I do whenever I'm trying to dial in my running by feel is I'll set, it's got to be between 158 and 163. And it beeps if I, you can see, you can give yourself a couple minute leeway either side and you let it beep and it just beeps and keeps you on track. So you wouldn't even have to look if you didn't want to, but I like yeah. that idea. It's great. Well, I just did it on the assault bike uh, la- uh, last week and I said, you need to be above 160 by the first 10 minutes is up. You need to be above 170 for the last 10 minutes and you need to work your way up to that somehow in between. And, and God, did I feel good about that one when it was done and I, a mission was accomplished. So I just like the simplicity again. And then it doesn't matter of what terrain you have. It doesn't matter. You just go and you put the throttle down and you stay there. And that's, uh, that's helpful. So um, any other ones that jump out? No, I think we've talked about a lot of them. You know, the Katie's you know, the two minute carrier drag, five minute run, those always make me hurt, but it's anything I do for time or for distance that allows me to empty the tank. Um, And I think it's important to note that this is not a training plan. This is not a sustainable style of working out. This is something you put in, in lieu of races. If you have a race coming up, you do it to prep for it. If you have no races coming up, you program this in every three to six weeks and you use it as a check-in and you use it to see what your training has been doing and you use it to stay mentally sharp. Yeah. You can't be doing this like twice a week, every week, because you think it eventually physiologically the wear and tear on your body is going to uh, outweigh the benefit of doing such work. But I think the main point that we want to get across is like, Have you been in the pain cave for real lately? Yeah, we know you've been out there grinding. A lot of you have been grinding and I, my hat's off to you, like fantastic job. But have you been in the actual pain cave? Have you? Ask yourself that question. Have I been to the point where everything inside of my body feels like it's going to explode and I want to quit? I feel the need to quit. I have to back off the pace. I can't sustain this anymore. I know those long mountain days, those three hour days, whatever some people are putting in, that's a different kind of hurt. It's not the hurt we're talking about. Yeah. We're talking about that, that beasting. That's what we're talking about. There are two types of people in a race. The type that are hoping someone next to them doesn't surge because you know you're probably going to let them go. And the person thinking, I'm going to surge and drop this person, or I don't care what you do. I'm here with you till the end. Like my body will give out or you're going to quit, but that's the only way we get separated. And that is partly innate. You're born with a hint of that, but that is something that must be cultivated over time. And the hardest person to race against is the person that you know you can't break. You either have to beat them or they're going to break you, but you're not going to get them to give up. That's Mm -hmm. a hard way of competing, knowing that what I do doesn't matter. It's just am I faster or not today. Yeah. And you look at most of the top guys in any sport, running or you know, any sport, OCR specifically, if I think about the historically successful people in our sport, pretty much every single one of them is just a steel trap 
I don't know many runners out there that have great success that just give up when it's not going their way or they've been broken at some point to rally. There's I, We could list off a dozen examples of guys, I think, that are just like that. So mm-hmm. that's what it takes. I mean, that's, that is the, the fight mentality that it takes to be good at OCR or just honestly distance running or any endurance sport. Yeah. So time trials fit into this as well. One mile five time trial, 5K, 60 minute time trial, your local eight mile loop, those all fit in as well. And I think I feel like those go without saying. So we didn't talk about it as much because we wanted to get those kind of outside the box, creative ways to hit multiple systems so that the compounding effect is worse. So you can do the same thing with local races if you can find them or time trials. But regardless of what you do, this must be approached like race day. This is the day where I text or call Kirk and say, hey, tomorrow morning, this is what I'm doing. And then the night before I treat it like a pre-race dinner and I wake up and I do my pre-race routine. You have your pre-workout guy, you take it. You do your race morning breakfast. You have your race gear on. This is the way to test out gear because everything is cool and fun during an easy run. But when your body's rebelling against you, your mind finds any little flap that's hanging off to pick at. And if Mm -hmm. you're in the middle of this and you're thinking, man, I can't stand how tight this toe box is on my pinky, or this waist pack is flopping around with this bottle and it's driving me crazy, or these socks are too hot or whatever it is, those excuses come out when you're miserable. And if you can make it through one of these and be like, wow, I didn't have to think about my shoes one time throughout that, or man, those shorts, they did really well. They didn't distract me one bit. That's how you know that your race day gear is ready to go. And it also gets you into race mode. You have to approach this ready to hurt like you would in a race. Yeah, you should be a little nervous beforehand. Mm-hmm. You know, that like little bit, if you're like me or any athlete, a little bit of dread before you hit the start button. Like that is normal feeling, guys. Like if you know you're about to do something big, um, I have a little bit of that at the start line because you know what you're in for. You know the pain that's coming. Um, that's the feeling you want to have before you start these efforts, I feel like. And that's and that's what we're going for. That same feeling when you're in that start corral and you're like, God, I know it's coming my way and it's going to be bad. Uh, mm-hmm. You want to get comfortable with that feeling. I agree with you there. All my best workouts of this style, these time trial race sim workouts, have come after delaying them for a few minutes because I needed one more bathroom break. <laughs> because I had enough nerves in my gut thinking I'm going to get five minutes in and I'm going to have to diarrhea. Like it, it, I've always had to delay them just a few minutes milling around waiting for one last bathroom trip. And okay, now, now I'm ready to go. And all my best races have come with apprehension and dread beforehand, but it's a different type of dread. When I'm about mm-hmm. to do poorly, I dread what other people are about to do. I think, oh man, I know when we get to this point, they're going to make such a nasty move and that's just going to hurt too bad. When I'm about to have an awesome performance, I dread what I'm about to do. About to do to yourself. You know what you're capable of, right? Yeah, I know that two thirds of the way through this, this decision point is going to come and I'm going to do something that's going to hurt so bad. I know that when this surge happens, I'm going to counter it or I'm going to hang on longer than I really want to. And I know that I'm ready to do something that I don't want to do. It's it's that difference. It's still a weird mindset, but knowing what you're about to do to yourself versus being afraid of what someone might do to you. Yeah, 100%. That's great. That's exactly how I feel. Um, I don't know if I have anything to add to this. Uh, what about you, man? I just think it's uh, we just do hard things and get yeah. out there. It's cliche as it is to say to get out of your comfort zone. Um, this is a sport about getting out of your comfort zone. And if you're not training that, uh, then you're missing the mark. So Marquette Schumate, 
He he won a free month of coaching last month, and I believe he chose it with you. <laughs> he did choose me. <laughs> I like him a lot, and he is 6'2", 6'3", 200 pounds, maybe yep. 210, just a stacked brick wall of a man. And he exceeds his running capabilities in every race. And part of the reason is because he's really, really dangerous mentally. But he always hashtags the same thing. He always says hard to kill. Yeah, he does. Hashtags hard to kill. And I I mean, that's a bit heavy handed and I love it because that's exactly what he's doing. He prides himself on being hard to kill. And is there anything more primal than that? Knowing like, man, that person's hard to kill. It's going (laughs) to take a lot to take that guy out. That is such, that speaks to me at like such a visceral level. I love that. And I, I really, really want to channel a lot of that into my training just every day thinking, all right, this is making me harder to kill. When I'm next to you in a race, it will be harder to kill me off because of this workout. And that mindset's got to be there. It can't be like, oh, I hope I don't die. It's got to be like, I am making myself harder to kill. Yeah, you're not just you know sucking up to Marquette to get back in his good graces. No, right man, he's dead to me right now. Kidding <laughs> <laughs> me? He bailed on me. But I like him enough, and I love that mindset enough that I'll give him a shout out on this. And then never again, Marquette. Never again, folks. I think we're about to wrap this baby up. Uh, we are thinking of doing another Q and A episode coming up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we've been getting a number of questions in our inbox that sometimes just warrant more of a conversation than a quick response. So uh, if you want, shoot us some uh, messages with any questions you may want answered. Otherwise, we'll probably put a poll up on our Instagrams, won't we, Bracken, I suppose, as far as that goes when it comes up. But that's it. I'm I'm ready to sign out, brother. Yeah. And you know what? Take us in for this. This is the kind of thing that it's nasty. And the more people you have in your corner, the better. Even if they could care less having them on your mind thinking, man, I'm letting them down if I back away from the flame on this workout. That is yeah. huge. So, And I'm not saying we could care less. I'm just saying the more people you have in your corner, the better. So take us in this the night before the, at Running Public. Tomorrow I'm going after this workout. Make it public. Put it out there. There is power in being held accountable. So yeah. take yeah. us in it and then break afterwards. Let us know how it went because other people will see it and it will hold them accountable. It's the same thing when we did this time trial episode, people started tagging us and posting about it. And there was this ripple effect. All the people down the line followed them, saw it happen, went out and did it themselves. So we're going to raise the whole mental toughness of the community up by being vocal about what you're doing. Yeah. And a little side note about that, guys. I don't know. The rhyme or reason here on the running public Instagram page for me is if you give us a shout out, we give you a, f- a follow, which sounds silly, but I want to, that's how we show our appreciation. You're giving us a shout out in a story or you're tagging us in something. I follow you instantly because mm-hmm. I appreciate that means we're brothers, we're boys, we're brothers and sisters. Like I like that. So, uh, and we can be paying attention to all the cool stuff you're doing if you uh, if you keep us in the loop that way. So just a little incentive there to, to maybe give us a tag or a shout. I like seeing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Every morning that we open up the account and look at it, it's filled with people working out. Yeah. It's generally not gym selfies. It's someone drenched in sweat or the screenshot of their GPS or their Strava. And that is what you need. Those are virtual accountability partners, which is about as good as it gets these days with COVID. So keep taking us, make it a communal effort. Don't go at it alone. And I will say, 
I use the running public page now more than my personal page. I scroll through those feeds. I see what you guys are doing. Like we go through and I like it because I like it. Like you guys are doing some cool shit. In fact, I'm overly impressed with not that we can leave this after this, but like with our social media, like following and the people that I'm now following or we're now following because they tagged us. Like these people are living the, like living it through, like they're living this fitness life. Like everybody that I'm following, I'm continually impressed. Like the ingenuity, sometimes I'm seeing stuff pop up of like things we've recommended and they're hitting a workout. I'm like, that sounds familiar. Like, it's just so, it's awesome. So I love looking, we love looking through and seeing that. Yeah. And I'll close it out by saying this. I was talking with my wife yesterday and I said, Lisa, I am so sick of Facebook. It's getting really toxic. Like this, mm-hmm. these days, it's really easy to go on there and like, it's instantly like apparent who has prejudice, who is a racist, who is not doing their fact checking, who is just like spewing conspiracy theories, all these things. It's, it's getting really hard to go through there. If I'm logged into Instagram on my account versus the running publics, it is night and day different. My account, it's like 30% fitness, 30% people I really enjoy, 30% toxic posting. Yeah. I log into the running public and it is a hundred percent fitness, wellness, people living holistic lives. And that is, I think that's rare. There aren't very many venues on this social media platform right now where you're pretty guaranteed that the vast majority of everyone you interact with is going to be uplifting to what they do. Yeah. So I don't, yeah. I don't know if that's a thank you or you're welcome, or let's just keep rolling, but let's keep rolling. Let's keep rolling. All right. Let's put a bow tie on it. Thank you.